May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Tell the truth about this one. You think that Jesus must have had an incredibly easy childhood, don't you? I mean, his mother already thought he was the Son of God, and so, you know, she had to probably clear a path for him, you know, make his life a little bit easier. Maybe that's what you think. I don't know. Maybe you've not thought about it much at all. Like, I've never much thought about the, the childhood of Jesus. You know, I just picked up when he was in his 30s, and, and that's where I've always just begun. I don't know. Maybe you're there. Um, the Gospels give us very little about his childhood. We have one story from, um, from St. Luke where he was 12 years old. But apart from that, um, almost nothing. His infancy, his birth, um, his family's flight to Egypt, uh, his little uh, snippet one time when they went to Jerusalem when he was 12. Um, other than that, almost nothing. Mark does give us a little bit of insight here, though, if you noticed. Um, according to Mark's record, Jesus has four brothers and at least two sisters. Now, maybe you grew up thinking... Oh, these aren't really brothers. You know, they're probably cousins. Um, if any of you grew up in a tradition where that was sort of the, the teaching, I have no fight with that, no qualm at all. That's fine. Think of them as, if you're like that, as cousins who live like siblings, assuming that they lived in a, in a tight-knit kind of family. Perhaps the best, clearest reading, though, is that Jesus actually has, as the text states from Mark's Gospel, um, brothers and sisters. Uh, his brothers' names would have been in, in Hebrew, Jacob, Justice, Judas, Simon. Jesus, of course, would have been Yeshua or Joshua. A- and then sisters, plural, so I take that to mean at least two. I want you to think about him growing up in a family, whether they're actual siblings or cousins that live in family, as uh, this family of seven children, five boys and two girls. Okay, This is the community, this is the the nuclear family that he grows up in. What do you think his experience would have been like in a family like this? And I don't know about you, but my experience is this. There are two, the two easiest positions of birth order to be in, the first child and the last child, right? If you're one of those two, the first child, the oldest, or the baby, you've got it made. You've got it about as good as you could possibly have it in birth order. If you're like me, and you're a middle child, you have, you know, the lowest rung on the ladder. It's really... Growing up, we always lived in either two-bedroom or three-bedroom places. Okay? Here's how it worked. In a two-bedroom, all three boys in the same room. But if there was a three-bedroom place, either the oldest got the room because he needed his privacy, whatever that meant, or the youngest... You see, I'm still bitter, don't you? Or the youngest got it because he was the baby, you know? I'm 46 years old. I have still not had my own room, ever, you know? Yes. And so, um, yeah, this is, this is the way it goes. And, and so here's Jesus growing up in, in this kind of, you know, family nuclear community. And, and I wonder, you know, if you think or if you might be tempted to believe that his mother sort of made a way for him, you know, oh, this is, this is Jesus, you know, he's, he's special. He's, I don't think so. I think he grew up like every little Jewish boy in Nazareth. Played in the street games, you know, did the sort of things. Probably broke old man Berkowitz's gate, um, you know. His dad undoubtedly made him go back and fix it. 
you know, donkey got out or something like that. It was it, he probably got blamed for it. Whether he did it, let's say he didn't do it, he got blamed for it. You know, and he's over there working on old man Berkowitz's gate, uh, trying to save the donkeys and whatnot. I think his life would have been very unremarkable. I don't think people stopped by when he was, you know, say 13, knocked on the door and said, hey, is Jesus home? You know, because our, our cousins came from up north and we want him to meet him, you know. Maybe he'll sign an autograph or something like that. I don't think that happened. I don't even think, you know, there's some, you know, a knock at the middle of the night, some desperate woman clutching a, a feverish baby and saying, you know, could he heal him? I don't think that happened. I, I think he was just as unremarkable as anybody. He was just a, a regular kid like every other kid in Nazareth, maybe even a little less interesting. And he grows up like that, like a regular part of the community. Boring old Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua. But as he does grow up, one night on a typical Friday night, he goes to a synagogue, as is his custom. Mark says, I, I take that to mean that he was in the synagogue every week, whether he, unless he had chicken pox or something, you know. He's there, he's, he's in the synagogue. And, and um, synagogue is sort of like coming to church. It's not exactly like coming to church, but it's a lot like going to church. You gather together in a community. Um, the, the, the people would, uh, you know, sing songs and read scripture and say prayers. And, uh, and so they did this on a regular basis. But the real difference was there was no professional clergy in ancient synagogues. It was all lay-led, you know. So, you know, they, they have a little schedule of, of who's going to lead in the, the singing and who's going to read the scriptures and who's going to give the, you know, the talk, the, the homily, the, the message. And I take it to be that this was just Jesus' turn when I look at Mark's gospel. Um, on the Sabbath, Mark says, Jesus got up and began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? Eugene Peterson translates it like this. On the Sabbath, he gave a lecture in the meeting place. He was a real hit, impressing everyone. We had no idea he was this good, they said. How did he get so wise all of a sudden, get such ability? I'm guessing, you know, he delivered a, a really good sermon that day, you know? It was heady and intellectual, peppered with just the right amounts of humor. It was, it was one of those really good sermons, you know? He, he's coming through, he's delivering, and people are like, wow! What insight, what thoughtfulness. But you know Berkowitz was sitting in the back row, don't you? You know? You know he's there and he's thinking, really, you know? This is the kid that broke my gate all those years ago. I remember that. You know, he's not, nothing special about him. You know, he's kind of, he's kind of downplaying it. He's not all, and I imagine that people maybe heard Berkowitz's grumbling. And, and they, um, you know, they, they probably chimed in a little bit. Yeah, you know, I remember some stuff he did too. I mean, he used to run around with those kids that, you know, they weren't all that good or whatever. Have you ever heard the story about his birth? You know, you can almost hear that one whispered. It was in the text. Son of Mary? Why not son of Joseph? Why is he son of Mary? I mean, perhaps it is that Joseph is dead at this time, but even more than that, perhaps there's a little hint of scandal in naming him son of Mary. Anytime somebody does something good, there's always somebody who's ready to knock the luster off that halo, isn't there? Jesus delivers a great sermon, and he's really not all that. He's nothing special. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem with Jesus in Nazareth. He's not special at all. Familiarity has bred such a contempt 
But nobody can see anything past the kid that grew up down the street. They can't see anything about him that's divine at all. He is very, very human. Now listen to this, what Mark says. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? This is what they're saying, right? Um, we know his brothers, uh, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters are here with us. Listen to this. And they took great offense at him. In just a blink of an eye, oh, wow, this is pretty amazing. And they took great offense at him. Just who do you think you are anyway? You know, Mr. Highfalutin, you know, you, you talk just like us, you know, you have this same Galilean accent. <laughs> I, I met somebody the other day in a parking lot. The older couple was looking for something and they, they saw Abby and I walking through the parking lot and they stopped us and I began to tell her and she said, where are you from? I said, what do you mean where I'm from? I'm not like from a different planet. I'm from right here. I live in Hudson. She said, oh no, no, where are you from? Because I can tell there's an accent. I said, there's no accent, um, but I'm from Southern Ohio. Might have spent a little time in Kentucky. And she, oh, that's where it is, you know. Uh, yeah. It's a lovely place, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Anyway, I, I digress. This is Jesus. We, we know, he speaks like us. He grows up here. And they're deeply offended. The word offended in Greek, skandalizo. They're scandalized by him. He's a scandal to them. And they snubbed him and want nothing to do with him. I can just hear the, why I never. You ever hear that? <laughs> why I never. I don't know what that means. In Kentucky, there's one word. It's well. You can use it. You can be excited. Well, you know, or or you can be disgusted. Like well, um, all that you can use it. I can hear the well. I can hear. I can hear the intonation uh, when somebody says it. Who do you think you are anyway? But that's not the whole story. That's not the whole lesson, is it? There's another part of the lesson, a very next line where Mark picks up, and he called the twelve. Nobody wants him to do anything in Nazareth, and yet he calls the twelve and he sends them out. He sends them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Go, get going. And they do it. They do it. They go out on mission with nothing in their pockets. Totally trusting in, in the power of God to deliver all that they need. And real miracles happen. Real bona fide, praise Jesus kind of miracles take place. People are healed. Demons are cast out. There's a real change in people's lives. And they all preach the exact same message. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I kind of, I went to, um, I went to, uh, when I was a child, for a, a few weeks to this uh, uh, vacation Bible school at a really, um, a very conservative fundamentalist church. And it terrified me. <laughs> you know? I mean, they, they had, repent for them was feel very guilty. Feel very guilty about all the bad stuff you've ever done. And when I was six, I had a lot of bad things I had done. I feel guilty about all those bad things and, and, and never do them again. And I knew that I could feel guilty about all the bad things I've never done, but I couldn't live up to the second part and never do them again. I had two brothers after all, and they wouldn't let me have my own space. Things had to be fought out, right? I mean, there was going to be conflict. Feel guilty. I, I kind of I recoil at the word repent. 
but I shouldn't, and nor should you. Repent is a really great word. It actually means to rethink. Metanaeo, to have an afterthought. Rethink all your suppositions. Rethink Jesus. Rethink what God is doing in the world. Have an ability to open your mind and to see what God is doing, to change your thinking about something. Now, you know, that's very difficult for us to do. You have to admit it. I mean, once you get to about 11 or 12, you pretty much have thought about everything the way you're going to think about it. You know, this is it. I think this way. Part of my job as a university professor was always to change people's minds, to get them to think. As a priest, you have to be much more subtle <laughs> in that, that tactic. But it's still the same job, isn't it? To, to get us to think. Stop. Rethink Jesus. Stop and rethink how, you, how God is at work in the world. Stop and rethink about the size of your problems you know, compared with the, the ability of God. People who were incurable in Jesus' day were cured. People who were possessed by demons were set free. Jesus' friends realized they didn't even need money to carry out the ministry that he had given them to do. They could go out with nothing. No bag, no bread, no staff, no wallet. And ministry would still happen and God would show up and real powerful things would take place. And what about us? What about today? What about the way that we think about the way the world works? About whether we think that, that power is held in places like Washington or London or Moscow or wherever. We think about the way that power is, is, is held in the hands of, of people who, who run for office. Or maybe in the amount of money that a person has. Or the amount of education that they possess. And we think that that's, this, is where, this is where the real power structures of the world are. In money, in politics, in education, science. I think what Mark wants us to see is that in a world filled with greed and corruption and justice and, and cruelty and hatred, where evil seems to be winning, that God really is breaking in. He's breaking in and not in the ways that they expected. Not through the, the, the mechanisms of politics or, or high finance or even education, but he's breaking in in a very, a very simple, humble way. In the life of Jesus, where people who knew him well said, nothing special there, nothing to see. Perhaps you've heard of, um, of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, uh, um, uh, you know, an Oxford-educated atheist in the middle of the 20th century, early, actually a little, little earlier than middle, but he, he has this, um, this decision he makes. He's going to read the New Testament, study the New Testament, and disprove Christianity because he finds it offensive. and He doesn't like it. And so he's going to study the New Testament and prove that Christianity is false. And he writes a book called Surprised by Joy because in his studying of the New Testament, he decides that he comes to have faith in Jesus and he becomes a Christian. And then he writes another book called Mere Christianity. And he says that if a person looks at Jesus, they face a trilemma. That Jesus is either a madman or he's an evil man or he is who he claims to be. He is the Lord. Let me read just a little bit from Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Namely, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would be either a lunatic on the level of, with a man who thinks he is, a, for say, a, a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was either a lunatic or a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is what Lewis says. Looking at Jesus, he has not left that option open to you. He's not a great moral teacher, if that's all he was. He's either who he said he was, he's a lunatic, or he's a madman. The most important thing about you and me today, the most important thing about us, if you sat down and said, you know, I need to write down, what is the most important thing about me? The most important thing about you and me today, what do we believe about Jesus? That is the single most important thing about us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.